0: The Last Dance arrived just when we needed it most. In this week's issue, our Chris Smith has the story of the long and winding road that brought the acclaimed documentary to market, as well as a broader look at the white-hot world of sports docs. He's here to talk about both. Then we turn to executive editor and publisher Abe Madcor and what's on his mind as we head into the week ahead. That and whatever else comes up once we get talking here in the far-flung virtual newsroom of Sports Business Journal. I'm Bill King. And this is First Look. You're watching The Last Dance, right? Me too. It's compelling sports entertainment at a time that many of us desperately need it. In to talk about that, I'm joined by our Chris Smith, who this week has the story of how 500 hours of footage that sat warehoused for nearly two decades finally made it to our screens as if sent by divine intervention. Chris, like so many people, I've watched The Last Dance, uh, the first few episodes with my sons who certainly, they're 13 years old and they certainly knew of Michael Jordan and the Bulls, but they didn't live through that era. And so we're watching it and they're fascinated by it. And, and one of them asked me, if they had all these great footage, this great film, why did it take them so long to make it? <laughs> and and I'm so glad we have this story that I can now <laughs> present to them. You've got a great and deep look at it this week. Let's start there. Why did it take them so long to make it?
1: It's a great question, and really the question that you know drove me to look into this story and report this story is you know you have this incredible footage. Why are you not doing anything with it? Um, and it really and it goes back to that '97 season. Uh, you have to remember. At the time, this sort of footage didn't exist at all. You know, no one, you know, the concept of following someone with a camera crew for a full year was totally revolutionary. Uh, and so it wasn't like today where someone might just follow you with a single camera. You had, you know, a five man crew, you have boom mics, you have film reels. Uh, and so it was a big ask uh, and especially a big ask of someone like Michael Jordan, who you remember at the time. You know, Space Jam was a year before, Right. Uh, has all these big ad campaigns, Gatorade, Nike, is a very public persona that he's interested in maintaining, uh, and now you want to go behind the scenes and see the real Michael, and so uh, they basically, uh, NBA Entertainment, under Adam Silver at the time, pitches this idea uh, to the team, Jerry Reinstorp, the owner, signs off on it, Phil Jackson, the coach, signs off on it, and then they go to Michael, and Michael, uh, essentially the way he shakes out is... You know, he says, fine, I'll let you follow me all season, but you can't do anything with this footage unless I agree. And that turns out to be quite the hurdle to get over. (laughs) So from, you know, from that year all the way through until 2016, any filmmaker who wanted to make this film, uh, you know, wanted to get into that footage, uh, the NBA, if they ever wanted to use anything from it, the answer was always no. Just simply, you know, there's nothing to do there because Michael won't allow it.
0: Well, it was. I mean, I it it was almost like Bigfoot, right? I mean, there was a, there was so it was like legend around whether this thing even existed. I it and and I love there's little details there, like like the i the original idea, Clay Thompson's uncle.
1: Yes, so Clay Thompson's uncle, Andy Thompson, uh, an executive, now at the time was a field producer. So NBA Entertainment, basically, in the uh, under David Stern when he first came in. Uh, they realized that they didn't have footage of uh, you know, the NBA's history. They didn't have uh, game tapes. And so mm-hmm. it became this whole effort to build up this video ball. And so they had these field producers throughout the league uh, and you know, kind of stationed throughout the country. And Andy Thompson was in Chicago, uh, and, you know, had a relationship uh, with some of the players on that team. And he's the one who kind of came up with this idea of like, how cool would it be if we followed this team you know, from before the season all the way through? And I think as a lot of people probably anticipated, the end of the playoffs. Uh, and had that footage of, you know, this last season uh, of arguably the greatest team in history.
0: Giving Jordan that final approval, which no contract, right? It's not like he, not like that it was in writing from what I understand, right? But but there was an agreement that you can't do this without him.
1: Correct. Yeah. The uh, As it was explained to me, it was a you know understanding between the parties. And I right. think one that obviously, you know, nobody'd be willing to violate given, you know, how important they right. all are to each other.
0: Right. So so the that but by giving Jordan that final approval, he never how did he get close? Did it did you know his his, his people Estee Portnoy Curtis Polk, were they close? How frequently were they, frequently were they approached? Because again, you always did hear that this stuff was out there, and I think there you had a great line in there from somebody that there was more than five hundred hours, and it was beautiful, and and boy, is it! By the way,
1: yeah, that was so that was from Mike Tolan, who is now the producer, who you know, the guy who finally managed to pull this off. Um, to your point, yeah, it was not something that. Uh, a lot of people knew about, but you know, when you're following around, uh, you know, a whole season with a camera crew, right? Uh, you know, people hear about that and people in the know knew that there was something there. And to your point, it was like an almost urban legend, right? That, you know, we know the NBA has this footage. They were behind the scenes. We have no idea what it looks like. We have no idea what's in there, um, but people are interested. You know, Michael Jordan is, you know, maybe the you know, single biggest athlete celebrity of all time and So filmmakers were routinely, you know, kind of knocking on the door, uh, you know, kind of exploratory conversations, uh, you know, trying to pitch uh, the NBA or Jordan's camp on different projects. Uh, And the way it was explained to me was that really nothing uh, ever got past the first, you know, uh, even ideation stage. Right. Uh, And so uh, Estee Portnoy uh, in Jordan's camp told me that, Uh, She and David Denenberg, who at the time was the lawyer for uh, NBA Entertainment, uh, they would talk about once a year and it would be, you know, hey, we have this on the table or hey, maybe it's time to think about uh, doing something with this footage. And, you know, if either it would just get shot down because it didn't seem like there was anything to it or it would go to, you know, SD talks to Michael and Michael says, nah, I'm not interested and that was it. it was just you were just stopping right at square one and not getting any further.
0: Well, part of the problem, I think, and you wrote about this a little bit, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about, particularly how protective um, th- those around Michael have been of his image, and even be willing to have those conversations. When you distilled this down to what might have been the traditional, you know, hour and fifty-minute documentary, it didn't look so it wasn't so flattering for Michael, right? I mean, was that a big part of this? And and what enabled them to turn that corner?
1: Yeah, so we saw a bit of that in episode two already, right? That there was that fire and that, you know, Jordan is sort of relentless. uh, And especially so on his teammates. He wants to make sure his teammates, um, you know, can stand up under that adversity and, you know, know, run with him the whole season. Uh, And I think the concern uh, from their side, from Jordan's side, is – You try to boil this down into a two hour documentary and he's going to look like a monster Uh, and you're not going to have the room to let him explain what he was thinking and really use enough of the footage to, you know, showcase everything that was going on. Uh, And so uh, and you have to remember, you know, for pretty much the entire time since 1997, 98, Mm -hmm. that's really what a sports documentary was. Hour and a half, two hours. And that's on the long end. And then really what changed in the industry was that we started seeing these multi-part docs. Um, You know, the ones that were named to me as really big influences. uh, Making a Murderer, a 10-part series that Netflix put out, and people were obsessed with it. They Mm -hmm. couldn't stop watching it. Um, You know, The Jinx, which was earlier that year in 2015 uh, from HBO. And then in the sports world, we had uh, O.J. Made in America. So that was the 30 for 30 documentary about O.J., Uh, Wound up winning the Oscar, and that was a massive movie. I mean, that was close to eight hours long. Mm -hmm. uh, And people loved it. And it sort of created this new norm of it's okay to go long. You know, there's an appetite for that. Uh, We're now in a different, I think, consumption world in terms of media where people are willing to sit down and binge watch a series like that. It's not alienating. It's not going to push people away. And, you know, because we have streaming platforms, it's not something that you need to do on television, right? And figure out how to work into a cable network's um, calendar or schedule. And so you now have this new norm of long documentaries. And Mike Tolan uh, from Mandalay Sports Media essentially went to Jordan's camp and said, hey, we can go long now. You know, we can give you the room to breathe. We can give you the nuance. We can really get into not just what happened, but why it happened. And I think that is really the you know what was compelling to them and to Michael eventually was that you know you can fully tell this story and you don't have to worry about being misrepresented.
0: But still, it Mike Mike Tolan has to convince you know first first Curtis and, and Esty and then Jordan right. How does that play out? When did that play out?
1: So it starts in uh, 2016 February. And they're in Toronto for All-Star Weekend. And so uh, the making, uh, sorry, OJ Made in America had debuted at Sundance just the month before. Right. And so very timely. Uh, and in Toronto, Mike Tolan speaks with SD Portnoy and Curtis Polk, basically you know, lays out his vision. Uh, and at that point, it wasn't too detailed, but basically the idea of saying, we're going to go along with this and really give it room to tell a full story, right? Almost treat it like scripted, where you can kind of figure out the character arcs and um, really curate uh, something special. Uh, Also in Toronto, he speaks with the NBA, Uh, and David Denenberg from NBA Entertainment, uh, and talked to him about the idea. And, you know, I think NBA Entertainment for a long time was hoping to do something with this footage because they knew it would really, really move the needle. Uh, And so after those conversations, the ball is rolling. Uh, And so, you know, Tolan goes back to L.A. and starts working out this pitch because uh, it turns out he's going to have the opportunity to meet with Michael and pitch him directly. And this is, uh, in my understanding, the first time a filmmaker reached that level where mm-hmm. he had the opportunity to sit right. down with Michael and really show, you know, talk about his vision. Uh, so that happens uh, four months later. Coincidentally, it happens to be the morning that uh, the Cavaliers are parading through Cleveland. So they're celebrating this historic championship you know, all eyes are on Cleveland and Mike Tolan has taken a red eye down to Charlotte. Uh, this is the day before the 2016 NBA draft. So, you know, sort of the staffers are running around, everyone's preparing for this major event uh, and he goes and sits down with Michael SD and Curtis. Uh, and SD explained to me, you know, he had these big pitch documents, sort of big boards that, uh, he had laid out kind of his idea of how this plays out. And it boils down to, um, and well, the funny thing too is that it was coming up on the twentieth anniversary of that season, so right. I think that was a bit of the momentum. Right. Uh, but it really boiled down to the pitch being, you know, we have people today, you know, right? Kids walking around, they're wearing your shoes, they're wearing your shirts, they have your logo on their clothing, and they've never seen you play. You know, they have their experience with you is watching YouTube clips or watching top ten highlight reels on ESPN. They've never actually seen you play. And to your point about you know your sons that. You know, it's a totally new experience and it's sort of this, you know, you know, you hear people talk about, oh, yeah, he was so great, but they don't have that firsthand raw experience of seeing that happen. To see those
0: those two games against Boston and, and not just see one or two shots from it, but to see one after another, after another, after another. Right.
1: And to have the people who were on that court, right, the guys who were sweating and trying to stop him. And they're giving you the play-by-play, right? The very first-hand experience. Uh, And so I think that was really, um, you know, from a legacy standpoint, that you can introduce this uh, almost legendary character, right? This superhuman athlete to a whole new generation. And I think that, you know, as we've seen because we're watching the movie, uh, was a very successful and very compelling pitch.
0: And after they get it made, obviously, there's no shortage of people who want to distribute it.
1: Yes. So that was even before they had it made, actually. So it was, uh, that would have been June, 2016. Uh, basically, you know, the tail end of that year, they find Jason Hahir, uh, who's the filmmaker who, uh, directed this. It was funny. Mike Tolan described it to me as, uh, he was sort of like, uh, the character in a beautiful mind where he had, you know, articles taped up to his wall and <laughs> like, just really mapped out this entire story. became the biggest expert on Jordan's life and career um, you know, totally immersed himself in the story. Uh, and then they essentially go to market, right. And they have to find out where is this documentary going to live? If it's going to be multiple parts, you know, how do we do that? Uh, and the way David Denenberg explained it to me was literally everybody who could possibly have this talk to them. Mm -hmm. It was everybody. And, uh, you know, it's funny that, you know, they have a tremendous amount of leverage then, But it really boils down, I think, pretty quickly to, you know, who is it realistically going to go to? Um, You know, Quibi seems to be doing some cool stuff. This is not a documentary. It's going to live on Quibi. So uh, Tolan says, you know, really comes down to we need a network uh, partner, right? Someone who is a partner of the NBA uh, who has experience doing basketball, and that is Turner and ESPN. Uh, ESPN winds up winning out there. And then on the streaming part, uh, they wanted a partner who would, one, have global reach, uh, so you can reach fans, you know, not just in the States, but all around the world. Right. Uh, and that, you know, we see with a lot of distributors you know, I think there's a real love for basketball content because it's a global sport. It's not, you know, football or baseball. Um, there are basketball fans everywhere. And two, with the increased number of people in the States who are cutting the cord, we want to make sure they have access and that they're not missing out on this huge event. Uh, and that winds up being Netflix. And so the the way the deal shook out was ESPN uh, and the initial plan was to air this in June uh, during the NBA Finals, uh, but ESPN broadcasts on cable. Uh, they have it on their, uh, you know, the ESPN app. Uh, you can stream it now. And then Netflix takes it overseas. And then after three months, Netflix kind of gets it uh, worldwide and so you'll get it in the States as well uh, to stream.
0: And then the last thing I wanted to touch on on this, the, the decision to move it up. It's a rather obvious one, you know, when you look at what we're dealing with. Um, I, I think that would right away you think, okay, let's, let's see if we can get this out now, but that's not as easy as just flipping the switch night, right? It was not, it wasn't ready to go.
1: It wasn't ready to go. Even when the first episodes are airing, uh, <laughs> just, uh, you know, a you know, little over a week ago. Um, yeah, I mean, to your point, I think everyone on the filmmaking side agreed, you know, this is something we should do. And it was a matter of figuring out, is this something we could do? Um, you know, I was talking to Libby Geist. Uh, she runs ESPN Films. Right. Uh, and she said, you know, they heard this clamor of, you know, why is ESPN sitting on this? Why don't you just air it now? And she laughs and is like, we're not sitting on it. We're working on it. We're finishing <laughs> it. Uh, you know, it's not that easy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is a massive, you know, 10 part documentary. Um, and so uh, gets to the point uh, that conversation started right after Adam Silver comes out and says the NBA is on hold. Uh, in mid March, and so from there it was just a matter of, uh, and the way it was explained to me is everybody agreed they had to do this, so it was mm. a matter of figuring out a timeline that would make sense. And so they come out at the very end of March, uh, and had figured out at that point that they were going to be able to run uh, two episodes every Sunday night, starting April nineteenth. At that point in time, they had a the majority of the episodes were locked and cut and in place. But you know, I would say probably three or four episodes were still having a lot of work done, and the final two episodes, as recently as uh, the second week of April, I was talking to a lot of people, and they said episodes nine and ten still weren't cut at that point. They were still going through, doing editing, uh, and really, you know, not quite finishing touches, but you know, real actual uh, kind of constructional work was being done on how those episodes were going to look. Uh, and you have to remember too these people are all working isolated and from home right uh, they're not sitting there in an edit suite like you normally would be uh they're all in apartments and you know that's a you know i, I would say it's a major hurdle for any of us who have been working and we've experienced that but you know from a moving making perspective it's just a lot of difficult conversations you have to have uh when you're not staring at the same screen together uh you know with your producers and with your editors uh, but uh you know The way I understand it is that uh, they're very confident that they can pull this off. Um, Because the other thing is, you know, 9 and 10, that gives them over a month to um, to figure out, even as the series is releasing. Uh, And I think that the goal from their end is that they don't want it to feel like the last few episodes were slapped together, or that, you know, they had to rush it, or that it feels like they did it remotely. And so um, everyone that I talk to, and obviously, Uh, you know, I don't think any of them would tell me otherwise, uh, but they make it sound like it's something that they're confident, you know, the timeline they chose is one that gives them the room uh, to really do something special and to make sure that, you know, the rest of this series plays out um, and looks as good as the first few episodes that we've already seen.
0: Well, we're all watching not only this, but a lot of other stuff these days, digging back through 30 for 30s and scanning Netflix, all to scratch that sports Jones that isn't getting scratched, right? It's, we don't have those live events. And so all of a sudden it's, you know, when it comes to the NBA, let's go back and watch the bad boys, you know, let's go back and find this, let's go back and find that. So, so all those 30 for 30s, I think are are surging back and there's, you know, again, across Netflix, all sorts of stuff that you can go out and try and find, but there was a trend well afoot before this, towards sports documentaries, right? I mean, everything that changed that allowed this one to happen at all, uh, because again, it would have never happened as an hour and a half or two hour um, movie. You dug deeply into that as well, into into that trend and, and, and the shift, right?
1: I did, yeah. So it was, uh, and to your point, you know, it's very much true that a lot of these documentaries almost have the buzz of a live event, right? I mean, this documentary airing on Sunday nights, it feels like it's a live event. Um, like you're watching a basketball game. Uh, and that's, you know, I think now is especially prominent because everything else is shut down. But that is to your point, a trend that's been going on really for over a decade. Uh, and it re- people I spoke to all point to 30 for 30. And you mentioned, you know, 30 for 30 docs, they're the ones now that are kind of define the sports documentary space in many ways. That hasn't been the case, obviously, uh, until very recently. Uh, so ESPN 30 for 30 uh, was first introduced in 2009, and the intent was its 30 documentaries to celebrate ESPN's 30th anniversary. Uh, to that point, it was really HBO's world. Uh, HBO had these historical documentaries. Uh, Leif Schreiber was the narrator for many of them, and uh, it was um, you know, and not that they were a cookie cutter, but it was all produced in-house and it was really these kind of monumental um, They felt like they were very serious documentaries yeah. and then 30 for 30 comes out and changes the game in many ways and one of the big ways is they have all of these filmmakers from all over the world and And from all over the map, you know within sports from you know Ice Cube to Steve Nash to Hollywood blockbuster filmmakers um, to the best of the sports documentary world and people like Mike Tolan and they basically give them the keys and say, do your thing. And so we saw that, you know, this filmmaking from an artistic standpoint uh, really starts to change in sports documentaries. Uh, And as that happens, I think we found, and as Libby Geiss explained to me, you know, they weren't even sure how it was going to take off uh, and whether there would be an appetite for it from fans. Uh, But the buzz that they've created and the interest from fans has been tremendous. And that's only grown. Um, You know, people have said to me that, the more they put out, it's almost the more you're stoking the appetite that a lot of um, these fans have. Stephen Espinoza, who's the president of Showtime Sports, mm-hmm. said that you know they are ratcheting up you know the number of documentaries they put out each year because it's people want more and more of this, and there is this uh, almost clamoring for uh, original content uh, around the live sports. And so I think that is kind of really set the stage for a lot of these major, notable documentaries we're seeing now come out. Um, you know, are really the result of over a decade of this timeline uh, within the sports documentary space.
0: Well, you talk to somebody, even a filmmaker who's, who, who who sort of has watched this whole evolution unfold, you know, before his eyes and have tremendous impact on on his work and his opportunities. Now a little frustrated by the fact that people want to get them done. Like there's no, it's, if it, if it happened two weeks ago, isn't it time to do a documentary, right? Because there's so much appetite out there.
1: Yeah, it is, it's true. And be, not just appetite from viewers either. It's appetite now from distributors. We have so many streaming platforms. And uh, as the audience gets fractured and goes different directions and splits up into smaller and smaller viewing groups, whether it's you know, Netflix or Amazon or Hulu, uh, you know, all the way down the line, all of these networks need original content. And so now it's, uh, you know, an example that, uh, so Billy Corbin, who's done a bunch of sports documentaries, he points out, you know, we are going to see so many Astros documentaries in the next few years. It's going to be just a flood and it's because every network is going to want one. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, non-sports world, but the fire festival documentaries, it's, right. you know, you see a bunch of those because everyone wants to make sure they have one for their viewers. Uh, and so it's become this, you know, frustrating thing because there's a rush from filmmakers to do all of these documentaries on the same subject and do it right after that subject got hot. Um, You know, rather than waiting five, 10 years to do the, you know, the definitive Astros cheating scandal documentary, where everyone at that point is maybe able to talk and they have perspective to look back and really reflect on what happened.
0: Total different conversation.
1: Right. Now it's just a rush of, you know, you might have half a dozen filmmakers right now banging on doors, trying to get people to talk to them and, you know, throwing together these documentaries so they can come out a year or two later. And so that way Netflix will have one and ESPN will have one and Amazon will have one. Uh, and I think from a filmmaking perspective, that is a frustrating thing to do, right? That now it's this war. Uh, you have to like, jump into that fray and fight to get a distribution deal so that you can go tell your version of a story that eight other people might be telling.
0: But at the same time, the money has really changed, right?
1: Yeah, it has. It is, um, you know, as more people come into the space, there's you know more money to be had in a general sense, but also because there's now competition, uh, if you are a you know real well well respected filmmaker or you have a really quality product now you have the opportunity to drive up the price uh, it's much easier to start bidding wars it is uh, truly a kind of uh, you know creators market right now and so as much as there might be frustration over the fact that you know there's also a bunch of filmmakers flooding the space and there's you know more competition to stand out I don't think there's a single filmmaker complaining about the fact that we now have, Um, more buyers than ever before, and they're spending more than they've ever spent before to get these films made.
0: Well, the one that we're watching right now is certainly extraordinary, is raising the bar for everyone. Chris, thanks so much for an an outstanding deep dive into it and for talking about it uh, today on First Look.
1: Of course. Thank you for having me, Bill.
0: Stay healthy and stay safe.
1: Thanks. You too, Bill. Take
0: care. First Look is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're a fan of our podcast, subscribe on your mobile device to have First Look delivered right to your phone every Monday morning. And now, as we typically do each week, we bring in executive editor and publisher Abe Madcore to talk about what he's watching around the sports business. Abe
2: Thanks a lot, Bill. There are a couple things I'm particularly looking at this week, and some of them were themes of our issue, and I would really encourage everybody to look at our ticketing package, because the more I talk to everybody in the sports space, particularly on the team and league side, they are very concerned about ticketing policies going forth. Some of the conversations I'm having on background are from team and league officials who really want to hold the line. Ticketing policies can be very complicated. Of course, they wanna be friendly to their customers. Of course, they see the high rate of unemployment claims, but they also have banked that ticket revenue in their coffers and for them to give it back is going to be a painful exercise for them. So I'm looking at the landscape to figure out how leagues can keep their teams aligned on ticketing policies. Most leagues will not want teams to really go rogue and offer lots of refunds because then other markets may see that. Other fans may see that and want to know why that doesn't apply to their team and their season ticket package. Teams will do everything they can to try to extend the credit. To offer a lot of incentives, both in drawing out payment, in putting more value onto the ticket, on creating membership-only events for these ticket buyers so that they can maintain that revenue. So that is a big story. It's Definitely one you're going to want to keep an eye on. Major League Baseball was scheduled to come out with a ticketing policy this week. You'll want to kind of read the fine print of that and just see what kind of leeway it it gives. As I look at it and I see the increasing number of people filing for unemployment, I know there's going to be a lot of people who are looking for the refund and not credit. They'll want the cash. We'll see how that will hurt teams because teams, at the end of the day, will give the money back. Certain states have different laws. But nobody believes in a court of law, if events are canceled, that the consumer won't have the upper hand on getting a full refund. And that's something I forgot to mention. It's about whether games are canceled. So again, that's the fine print, not just postponed, not just delayed, but cancellation. So keep your eye on that. Another thing I'm keeping an eye on, boy, a quick hat tip to the WNBA, Kathy Engelbert, the way they were activating around their draft. Remember, they were the first ones to go virtual and they executed it very well. Sabrina Unesco, great story. I love this story in this week's issue about her relationship with Bill Duffy, a neighbor. She. She knew his children, they played basketball together, a friendship developed, and he becomes her basketball agent and advisor. Really just a great story. But again, remember the WNBA was on our shortlist for League of the Year at the Sports Business Awards? Well, all of that seems like a long time ago, But a nice run for that league with a collective bargaining agreement, a new brand campaign, new leadership, new players. Let's really hope we can get back to the core and see some of the true exciting elements of the WNBA. And another piece I'll give a shout out to read Terry Lefton's column in this week's issue. He talks to people who tested positive, who were sick with COVID-19 and the really debilitating experience it was for them really gets inside the illness. It really gets inside these people. struggle over about a 10 to 20-day period, and it really brings the COVID-19 pandemic much more personal, much more close to home because so many of you in the sports industry know these people who were sick, but thankfully, they're better. Finally, look for our final CAA World Congress comes to you, the final episode of that series, Wednesday, May 6th, got some great speakers. We are going to be doing these frequently going forward, our virtual conferences. Love to hear from you topics, formats, types of programs that would be valuable to you, please let me know. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, stay connected, and I'll turn it back over to Bill King. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks, Abe. That's going to do it for this week. For Abe Madcore,
0: Chris Smith, and our producer, Chris Mason, I'm Bill King, and this has been First Look.